Hello again, Kobo in Conversation listeners, and welcome to the third and final episode that we recorded live on stage at the 2022 Toronto International Festival of Authors. This event, called Beneath the Veneer, brought together novelists Neben Ruthnam, author of A Hero of Our Time, and André Forget, author of In the City of Pigs, for a discussion about the seemingly well-intentioned but often insidious narratives of so-called progress that permeate our modern times. Let's go now to the Harbourfront stage in downtown Toronto. I am Nathan Maharaj. I'm director of content marketing for Rakuten Kobo and the producer and occasional host of the Kobo in Conversation podcast. I am delighted to be moderating this discussion about what lies beneath veneers with two novelists whose most recent novels engage with this topic brilliantly. Andre Forget is the author of In the City of Pigs, the story of a failed musician, Alexander Otkazov, who makes the extremely questionable decision to move from Montreal to Toronto, <laughs> where he finds work as a classical music journalist who explores a borderline eyes-wide-shut-esque underground and underwater avant-garde music scene. And to his immediate left, you will find Neben Ruthnam, the author of A Hero of Our Time, a darkly funny book about Osman Shah, an edutech startup employee whose contempt for himself is matched only by the contempt he imagines others have for him, especially his colleagues. Neben, Andre, welcome to Tifa. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, I have a bit of a tricky job to do here. Uh, you both know each other. Uh, Keen-eyed readers actually would notice that um, these gentlemen acknowledge each other, uh, they thank each other in the, in the end notes of, of each of their books. So, so I am, I'm a third wheel if ever there was one. Uh, I know full well that if, if, I do, if I do a bad job here, if I, if I prove myself entirely superfluous, um, that I will at best be the subject of a funny uh, book festival, festival anecdote that gets told later in tandem. Uh, so so I hope... I hope if I do a poor job, it's, it's bad enough to actually dine out on. <laughs> um, I want the audience to hear a bit of each of your books, um, but perhaps let's start with you, Andre. Could we hear a bit of In the City of Pigs? Yeah, for sure. And uh, well done on picking up the Eyes Wide Shut reference. Uh, you're the first person <laughs> who's got that. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing to say about Montreal. I remember only the slow inevitability of the train pulling out of Central Station the benevolent red glow of the Five Roses sign, the whiteness of the year's first snow sprinkling the trackside. Montreal was a dream from which I awoke as we sped past the Lake of Two Mountains, a patchwork of brown nocturnal memories, a puddle of piss turning to steam on the sidewalk. Outside the window, dead fields lay under a dusting of snow so fine the darkness of the furrowed earth was still visible. It was the last day of November, Laptops snapped open around me, and my fellow passengers pulled up their spreadsheets and quarterly reports. I had no work to do. I turned to the window and listened to Glenn Gould's recording of the Brahms Intermezzi on my phone. I was in a sentimental mood, and nothing has ever been more sentimental than Gould's fingers landing on the opening chords of that E-flat major intermezzo. There was nothing outside the window but farmer's fields and ditches and forests. Occasionally, a small town's asphalt roofs and dejected steeples passed by. The only indication we were leaving one unhappy province and entering another was the signposts. 
Towns named for polysyllabic saints gave way to towns named for colonial administrators. And yet, I couldn't look away. Montreal had died for me so the rest of the world could come alive. I hadn't been to Toronto in years, but the city had, over the past months, taken on a dense significance in my mind. This was not because of Gould and his delicate E-flat major intermezzo. Gould's Toronto had disappeared decades ago, buried under condo towers and chain pharmacies. If anything, the more or less complete erasure of the city Gould had known made it possible to imagine moving there. Toronto attracted me in direct proportion to the claustrophobia and disgust I felt walking the streets of Montreal. The city as it existed in my mind was an elaborate perversion, a glassy necropolis where skinny men in Tiger of Sweden suits ran free beneath a sky refracted in colored glass, a vulgar and frictionless place, a city that could now never produce a Gould. Alexander, your protagonist, he finds the decrepitude of the apartment he moves into reassuring. Though I sympathize, I wanted to ask why. Is, is it a particularly Toronto thing to be glad that your housing is, is, is falling apart? Uh, well, I don't think too many Toronto renters are glad that their houses are falling apart, but uh, Alexander is a loser. Uh, in his own mind, this is his defining quality, <laughs> is that he's a loser. And uh, his move to Toronto is, uh, is out of a desire to stop being a loser, um, but he's also very comfortable being a loser. And so there's this, these two things pulling at him uh, throughout the novel. Uh, can he cease to be a loser? Uh, or or does, does being a loser provide the sort of comfort that, that he actually wants? So I was playing around with that. I mean, I, I never lived in Montreal myself. So the decrepit apartments that I lived in were in Winnipeg and Halifax. Um, and to a degree, moving to Toronto into a crappy apartment was... You know, I, there was some comfort to that. You know, mm. it's, it's familiar. Um, yeah. Mm. He's a pianist by training, Alexander, the loser, is. Um, it's an interesting choice of instrument because uh, he spends very little of the novel anywhere near a keyboard whatsoever. And, and it is an instrument that comes with a certain logistical, uh, certain logistical and real estate requirements. Um, pianos don't, no one incidentally has a piano at a party. No one whips out a piano around the campfire. Um, was, was there ever a point in the novel where perhaps he was an oboist, a flautist perhaps? Or was it always that he was going to be a musician who, whose, whose ability to practice would be, would be severely hampered by logistics? See, that's a, that's a really interesting take. Uh, and I, I hadn't thought about that at all. Mm. Um, now in the world of classical music, as I've experienced it, there are two instruments that are kind of the, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you would call them, like the, the, the ultimate instruments, and that's piano and violin, mm -hmm. right? Um, there are far more pianists and violinists than, than any other instrument uh, in, in classical music, obviously guitar or you know, in, in pop music or, or jazz, you would, you would find a different uh, breakdown. Um, so, so piano is kind of the, the instrument you play if you're really trying to be the best. Um, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't cast aspersions on on people who play other instruments. <laughs> Obviously, people who play trombone are also dedicated to excellence. Um, but it, but I think it it has that texture of being this is the most competitive instrument in a highly competitive mm. world of music. Mm. So he's shooting for the moon by trying to become a pianist in a way. Mm. Um, and I, I I wanted that detail in there because I think for people who come from a classical music background that idea of the failed pianist would be uh, 
recognizable, I right. suppose. Mm. Um, he, he observes that he's filled with an incipient sense of dread by jobs that lack a very specific output or require a particular contribution. Um, as a journalist, I guess he, he, when he finds that work that he's, he's maybe comfortable, um, I guess when his invoices get paid, that there's comfort that he's producing um, something. Um, Why, to pick up on on your earlier question and and kind of expand it a bit, why would he, why was it important that he be a journalist and not just a musician out of work struggling to to find a place? Um, Well, sometimes these decisions kind of make themselves when you're writing a book, Mm. right? So if you have a character who's uh, a cop, then that allows that character to move through the world in a certain way, right? That's why we love cop shows. We, the collective culture, I suppose. <laughs> I don't particularly like them. But uh, if you have a police officer, then you have an immediate episodic thing. Every week there's a new thing. If you have a doctor, every week there's a new patient coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a journalist, then this person's job is taking them out into the world. Mm-hmm. They're going out, they're encountering phenomena, they're leaving the office, they're covering stuff. Mm. So as a novelist, that immediately is, is appealing because it gives your character some sort of impetus to go out into the world and uncover the story. Um, whereas if the, the character, well, I can imagine an accountant, you know, also <laughs> uncovering all sorts of wonderful <laughs> things, but I, I know less about accountancy than I do about journalism. So journalism is where I, where I landed. So this, this, is, this is where I want to transition uh, to talk to Neben a bit because, um, Osman's job, I'm not sure what he does. I, I'm, I may have missed a detail, that's possible, but, but he, he seems to, I think, share the sense of dread. There's certainly the, uh, a sense of dread percolating through the book. I wonder if he can label it as clearly as Alexander can, but before we talk too much around it, I hope um, you might read us a bit of, of a hero of our time. I have to be a bit uncouth and read it from my phone because <laughs> I came ill-prepared. Certain stories are for wielding, not telling. I used to have one before it was taken away. It was more of a joke, a few lines of generic airport experience and television borrowings honed into a minor weapon for use in business situations. But I counted on it. The final time I used it was at the AAP conference in October 2018. Seven listeners and I were on a sickle-shaped couch in the lobby of a generic hotel implanted into the superstructure of a retired castle in Montreal. The couch was upholstered in washable light gold fabric that rasped against pants and skirts and felt like Kevlar against my palm as I pushed myself deeper into the cushion, hoping to discover a secret angle or groove free of the rigid springs that were pressing into my tailbone. I don't blame them. I'd pat me down, too. I am always no exception late to the airport, sweated up when I get there. The air conditioning freezes it on my face and gives me that hospital or strapped with plastique sheen. Then there's the whole this thing. I added, as I did every time, to the invitation of my smile with an up-down displaying wave of hand over face. The downstroke acknowledged the skin that caused the airport situation and the unease of my listeners. The upstroke, a toss like I was flinging salt or a spell, dismissed any tragic significance, sent race into the ether, let my listeners join in a laugh if they were brave enough to start it. Anyone who takes pleasure in rendering even brief power from goodwill and fear is shit. When I used this story, I was no exception. I want to make it clear that I understand this and that it doesn't prevent me from discerning that Olivia Robinson was and is much worse than I am. She's also, in the sense it matters to her and to our world, much greater. Thank you. Can you, can you tell us what is 
AAP, the company that Osman finds himself employed by? Uh, AAP is an educational technology company that is overhauling the way we learn for for a new century. And it's, it's going to really bring student learners into a new space of enriching the administrative departments you guys want in on an investment universities. Route, right? you, you, <laughs> this is a it's, good pitch it's basically it's an it's a technology company that uh, um, gloms onto the worst capitalist in, interests of the of an increasingly privatized higher education sphere mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote this just pre-pandemic so the big revolution in my book is that it was gonna is one one of Olivia's big sales pitches is to do a fully remote semester at this one private college to show that they can open up their doors to international students paying enormous fees and have limitless class sizes. Of course, when the pandemic happened, that 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 sales <laughs> pitch was kind of taken away from me because it just happened, and yeah. now it's the world we live in. Why why focus specifically on on edutech, not finance or social media or or things that maybe folks might be a little more familiar with? Um, it's as Andrew was, sa- Andrew was saying. It's sort of the the world that presented itself to my life first. I've I've you know I've been to colleges. I've taught in colleges. I've taught at some exploitative private colleges that I later quit. I've also uh, worked in in uh, social media promotion for various institutions. And it was it was the knowledge that I had closest at hand, and it also had to do with the things about um, the twentieth century that I value most. Mm-hmm. Um, education, literature, these things. Uh, I have to admit that um, I relate more than I'd like to say to Osman when he says, reading is all that my education and inclinations have equipped me to do. And even then, not quite at a professional level. Thank you all for coming this evening. Um, Osman is really the embodiment of how far I think we've let our esteem for, for, like a, for liberal arts education fall. Um, because it, it's, it, it, uh, you know, he's got a job, he's got a job better than, than Alexander's. I mean, he's, he's certainly, I think less precarious. It's, it would seem right. But, but he's, he's carrying that sense of precarity and dread with him. Um, what, where, where did this character, this, this executive, um, who's afraid of his own shadow, where did this come from? How did you, how did you envision Osman? Part of it was thinking of, Myself, if I let go of everything I actually loved and valued, which would actually be a very practical decision for me. <laughs> and, and it really does, it pays off for Osman in the book, uh, you know, not at the expense of his soul, but at the expense of any sense of a tangible identity that is actually his own, mm. as opposed to those that are visited on him by other people who see him or see how they can use him. And, and the one he kind of takes on as he goes on his little revenge mission, which is really a mission to sort of pretend he's still a real person. <laughs> um, as, as we think about Osman's interiority and his revenge mission and his motivation, I, I wondered how alone he was in this and whether, whether there was ever a time when you wanted to get more, uh, to reveal more of the interiority of, of, of Nena, of, of Vic, of, of the peripheral, especially Vic, um, the, the characters that are more in the periphery, or was this always going to be the interiority of Osman uh, and the fear and confusion of others. I think his his greatest problem, in addition to to what he's let go of, is his uh, his fundamental incuriosity about people <laughs> around him. He's he cares so much about how they perceive him mm. that he uh, he never asks the right questions of others, including you know the woman he loves and the man he grows to admire, mm. and even his enemies, because he's he's just much more concerned with what they all think of him and what he can do with them. Um, 
and I I wanted to. This is it's not it's not stolen from Nabokov, but it's at least borrowed secondhand from him from from Lolita. I feel that's one of the great superpowers of that novel is presenting someone who seems to have this incredible perceptual grasp on the world around him and yet can do this incredibly disgusting thing. And the answer to how he can do this incredibly disgusting thing is he doesn't ask about other people because he's not curious about them. Mm. He doesn't care that he doesn't care about them. He only cares about himself. That's a, that's a very um, blunt interpretation of Lolita, but that's, I think that's where the evil in that novel comes from. And mm-hmm. in the case of this novel, it's where his loneliness comes from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't this isn't your first novel. Um, it's the first under your first novel under your your real name. Um, you've written thrill, two thrillers as Nathan Ripley. Why for this book did you borrow the title? Speaking of of the of Russian uh, literary masters, um, why did you borrow it? Uh, borrow the title "A Hero for Our Time." Um, well, I think if any of my if any of the fans of my thriller novels had picked this up under under the name Nathan Ripley and read the first page, they would have been pretty annoyed at me just just for the sentence length and like general not reader forward leaning nature yeah. of the prose. Like it's a book that um, certainly invites you in and hopefully is funny and engaging, but it's it's not one that propels you along in the ways that modern thrillers have to be extremely page turningly propulsive. Mm. Um, it's not that kind of book, essentially. Nathan Ripley's books are very, you know, audience-facing. I still find them to be internal and psychological in a way that interests me, but I must admit is less interesting on the thriller market these days. The, mm. the sort of um, Ruth Ware or Shari LaPena type of page-turner is much more prominent now, which is bad news for Nathan because he sucks at writing those. <laughs> <laughs> Bummer. Did you see? Did you see Osman as as a kind of uh, as a kind of Byronic hero, or is he an anti Byronic hero? I'm just wondering about the Lermontov uh, uh, borrowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, that very much came from uh, in Lermontov's Hero of Our Time. Um, when it was first released, was sort of scandalous to the Russian readers who read it, and they immediately assumed that everything disgusting about Pechorin, the the central character who also emulates this, this sort of romantic heroism that is great while being sort of a moral black hole. They assume, like, Lermontov, that must be you. This book is about you, and you're disgusting. And in the introduction to the second edition, he said, this book is not about me, it's about you, the reader. Mm. And it, it's very much a reflection back to society. And I think I chose that title because, you know, having a person of color protagonist who's crusading against a, a powerful white capitalist... Mm. That's a hero in, in a modern literary novel. Of course, it's it's a hero in discourse on on the side of the politics of everybody in this room. I'm sure because they're at a literary festival. Um, I think I think what I wanted to do is really trouble that and say that despite the intentions, despite the goals, perhaps being lofty in some way, it's still possible to have a fundamentally corrupt person who sees a lever to power in every possible situation. Mm, yeah. Um, on the uh, on the subject of, of uh, uh, on the subject of veneers, apparently the name of, of this session you, you've you've all come to see, um, cleverness is a theme that that uh, that I think comes up in both novels, whether explicitly or, or implied. Um, maybe reading them in tandem is is what is what's got me thinking along these lines uh, as a as a cleverness as a quality that the audience perceives um, and then gets to credit themselves for having done so. Um, 
it also damns the object of its application, right? Because clever is is not a synonym for intelligent or wise. It's it's deliberately coming up short. It's 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 a word that does that. that that's its design. Andre, I wanted to ask if you can speak a bit about the aversion to cleverness um, in the music scene that Alexander participates in. There's a there's a scene where where cleverness I think is is discussed briefly as a as as a as a a, a um, an attractive thing to the masses, but less attractive to the discerning. Oh, are you referring to uh, the scene with Sev and Alexander, and they've just seen an opera, and Sev is like, "It was so f- clever." Yeah, yeah, they're get, they're <laughs> yeah. getting they're getting to know each other a little bit that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think uh, I think it's a very good question um, because to to go back to Lermontov and a hero of our time, I mean, that novel famously kind of originates the superfluous man which becomes this kind of great theme in Russian literature throughout mm. the 19th century, this idea of these people who have a role in, in public life but are, are completely disconnected from the public, mm. from, from the idea of the public individual who is contributing in a, in a meaningful way to their society. Uh, and I think both of our books, in a way, are books about superfluous men. Um, and I think that their cleverness, because Osman is also a very kind of smart character, who kind of sees through a lot of what's going on. I think Alexander is probably not as smart as Osman, but thinks he is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, this, this idea of the, the, the knowing subject who encounters the world and can see through everything, understands everything, is, is jaded and cynical, feels like an extremely contemporary character. Um, that this is kind of one of the major poses that is available to someone. Um, you can't buy a house. You can't, you know, get job security. Uh, you can't get uh, your teeth fixed more than once every five years. But you can be clever, right? And there's a kind of shallowness in the clever, in the clever thing. Mm-hmm. And in that conversation that you're referring to, uh, Sev uh, is a singer, and Sev is one of the people in the book who has a reasonably healthy relationship with art. He doesn't put too much on the art. He doesn't ask the art to do things that it can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, he has an awareness of his position in the world. And he's not untroubled by some elements of it, but I think on the whole is comfortable, is comfortable as who he is in a way that Alexander absolutely is not. Mm. And uh, Alexander uses his cleverness. In that scene, his whole point is, even though this opera was intentionally, you know, extremely viciously staged and and annoying <laughs> and, <laughs> and cruel to the participants, um, whether on stage or off. He he sees that and he's like, "Oh, what a great idea! What what a what a fuck you to to everyone! Mm. This is great." And Sev Sev is a little bit more like, "Well, that's kind of a mean thing to do. This is like a mean piece of art. Mm. Do we actually need? Do we actually need that?" Yeah. Which I I think both of those both of those sides, the cleverness and then also the, the desire to let go of the cleverness and just enjoy something mm. uh, is something I, I certainly feel myself, that, that duality. Um, I feel that, inte- I, I don't think this, but I feel it, that to be intelligent means that you can't enjoy anything. Um, yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna ask you, I, I'd had that right in my notes of, of asking, is it a resistance to pleasure at some level, some kind of like twisted puritanism? Absolutely. And I, 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 I think Puritanism is a good word, right? Because he is kind of a puritanical figure. And if you said, Alexander, you're being a Puritan, he'd be like, no, I'm not. Yeah, what are right. you talking about? <laughs> but, but he certainly has that in there. And in a weird way, I think Osman 
also in his relationship to his body, which mm. is such a big part of the novel, this like feeling of disgust with the flesh. Uh, there's, is there a Puritanism there? Yeah, absolutely. I think, that, I think it's also a sort of a, a Puritanism. D- 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 it's sort of derived from the East, I would say. It's probably the, the most like a traditional ethnic novel part of that book is um, his parents are, you know, relative to him, really libertines because they've actually, his father especially, has taken great pleasure in his life. And while Osman is definitely like a young brown man of his era, or so he thinks, or so he tries to be, he cannot. He cannot take this pleasure. And part of that is is his uh, very displaced and bizarre rebellion against his father, but also his his um, his inability to have anything else that his father had, that big list of property that you just listed, that, that is generationally out of his grasp. But also the the idea that he could choose what he wanted to do and what he wanted to be. And mm-hmm. even in his case, what he could choose to look like or feel about how he looks. Right. Well, his, his, he's an interesting character in how he presents himself because I got a sense that his, his sense of his brownness goes no deeper than what white people can see. He doesn't seem to think much about it beyond that. I mean, and it's right in the, anecd- it's in, in the, in the opening pages where he's telling this anecdote and, and it falls apart because someone takes it seriously rather than holding it at arm's length, I think, as he designed it. Um, and he's tripped up by that. There's also a lovely, um, and I have to get this verbatim, there's a, a lovely thing where he says, uh, where Osman uses things like band t-shirts to place him in this, like in like a racial hierarchy, and he says, uh, making his light westernized brownness pop. Oh, I think that's Nana, actually. Is it that's, Nana that's, saying that's that? Nana. Sorry, okay. Nana is observing that of him. Okay. No, no, it's, it's, she's, a, she's a Persian. She's Iranian. Yeah. She's Iranian-American. So that's, she also has a strategic approach to race when she's, in, in this case, going to meet a, uh, a hedge fund guy who's mm. extremely powerful. So she wants to make him slightly uncomfortable, but also welcome with right. a New Order t-shirt. <laughs> there, we not, now we get, the, we get the footnote. It was a New Order t-shirt. Okay, all right, awesome. Um, can you tell me a bit about that sense of, of, of brownness, of that surface level brownness? That, 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 I mean, it's particularly intriguing to me. I'm, I'm a mixed race person who presents frequently as white. So I get red as white, but I know what I am. Um, you know, I read your Curry book with like more, more skin in the game than, than, than a lot of the other readers. Um, uh, you know, my favorite foods I know by scent and sight, but not by name. Um, that kind of thing. Um, so what, what I'm kind of asking kind of about the genesis of, of this, this character who, yes, he's incurious about others, but there's there he's also incurious about himself in this really interesting way while also minding his presentation uh putting in putting a lot of energy into that it's sort of arrived at externally um i guess like the the intellectual idea behind it is that his right now his brownness his race and the way he looks is interpreted as the fundamental fact of his existence, which mm. defines everything he does, and also that that fact is only one fact. It is not different for you or for me what that brownness means. Right. So sort of that's the hovering intellectual idea around this, this uh, treatment of race. But for him himself, his, his parents are both people who, they're a different kind of immigrants too. They're immigrants who continually talk about the homeland where they came from, who go back every year, every two years, who will always have a piece of themselves over there. And then there's ones who... When they emigrate, it's it's a happy thing for them. It, it, a purely an uncomplicated flight, I mm. think. And I think there are a lot of South Asian immigrants who have that experience, and then generationally, their children might feel that their parents are interpreting it this wrong. 
Mm-hmm. No, like this was not. This is not how you're supposed to feel about where you came from. This is not supposed how you're supposed to feel about where you ended up. And I think there's even a third category of um, of brown people who simply move move through life, move you know from from the subcontinent to here, and don't really think about it that much. They think about their <laughs> lives in a very present and grounded way. Yep. And of course, racism can manifest in all sorts of ways in that, but it not, doesn't necessarily have to do with the past or with identity. It's about what you look like right now. And for Osman, who's found a niche in the world, like first in, in liberal arts and then in a tech industry job where he's, his, his race is very much valued, um, he's found a way to sort of spin that racism and, and just use the external perception of himself as the way he feels about his race in a given situation. But yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't think about it, which I think is actually the most subversive thing about a Canadian novel by a brown guy that you can do right now. Right. Yeah. 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 And he's contemptible. Like he's yeah. like, he's like, yeah, yeah. He, um, there's, there's this, there's this curious thing that happens late in the book. I'm not spoiling anything. We're not, we're not going to do spoilers here, but, but he, I think what, what it, what it gets at is, is I was thinking of, of, uh, WB Du Bois's, uh, concept of double consciousness. And, but rather than, rather than being uh, highly exclusionary, which I think Du Bois was getting at was like, you know, am I allowed to be here? Am I behaving in a way that allows me to be here? But I'm also like, I'm actually still here. And I don't perceive myself outside of that. So there's there, the double consciousness I felt of, of, of the um, major Brown characters in this book was, was more about less about belonging because because there were capitalist forces that made them belong. You know, the, you're, you're part of our diversity and inclusion numbers and you're, you're on the right side of that. There was also the, 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 the double consciousness was how much of an interior life do you have? Um, how much, how much is there under the surface? And, 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 and Osman turns out to have radically overestimated himself. That's right. And I think that sort of the trick of the race thinking in, in this book is it, it, you get it through the body, that, that sort of thing that's also Puritanism. It becomes clear throughout the novel that he doesn't actually know what he looks like. He certainly knows that he hates his body. Yeah. He, he finds it disgusting, but he doesn't know what it looks like anymore. And I think that's, that's as close as he comes to thinking about race, is, is being so entirely detached from his own existence, being inside his body, that he doesn't know what he is anymore. I want to I want to jump back to um, uh, Andre with with a question about expressions of taste as we make sure that we come back up to the veneer topic that we've been charged with here. <laughs> um, Alexander realizes, uh, as I think many losers do, um, that that people with money to spend on food and art are the same ones he believed to have tastes inferior to his. I thought that was a lovely observation of of where he where I think he was coming upon the realization that good taste wasn't going to wasn't going to bestow him with with power with comfort quite quite the contrary <laughs> <laughs> yeah quite the contrary exactly yeah yeah um it it made it made me think about like you know Jean Jean uh, Jean Luc Godard just died and like the more broken up you are about that. Like that, there's like a socioeconomic graph of like, if that really hit you hard, you, you may have missed some things early in life to set you up for material comfort and success. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm completely impl- implicating myself in this. I'm not like at, at, at the zero end of this scale. Um, what was, when, when did you have that archetype of, of Alex being that kind of person who just had that, that kernel in their, in their sense, in their, in their heart of, of like, my taste is better than most other people's? 
and I deserve something for that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a really good question uh, because the, the novel started with the second part. So it's told in four, four sections, four movements, I call them, um, to be pretentious uh, as much <laughs> as anything else, to convince people that this is not a, it's not that I was lazy and I didn't bother to make a proper novel. It's, uh, it was intentional. Um, so the, it started with the second part. My friend Joel Peters, who's a composer based in Montreal, called me up and he said, we're doing this collaborative arts project. Do you want to write a story about an underwater organ? So I, I thought, what the hell? Why not? Uh, and it was like the only time in my life I've just sat down and written a story. You know, it's, it's mm. about 8,000 words. And I wrote it in two nights at a bar on DuPont Street. You know, I just went there with my laptop and I wrote the story. It just came out. It's never happened before or <laughs> since. Uh, and part of what made that story work, I think, is that it's not really a story about Alexander. At that point, mm. Alexander was just this kind of eye that I could move around and show things to. Um, and uh, the novel, writing the novel was a process of saying, okay, this eye that I've created for this story and that I've used again in this story, how do I turn that eye into a character rather than an observer, a function that allows me to tell the story I want to tell? Mm. Um, so that story, the, the lower registers about the underwater organ, um, he knows a lot. That's, that's a key thing in the story is that he's researched these underwater organs and he just tells you everything about them. And he kind of has this way of speaking that's very comfortable with classical music and these sorts of references. Um, and that I did for that story, for that project, right? Without thinking about it too much. Um, so then I had this character and I, I thought, okay, so why does he know all this? Right? I, I, I mean, there was a technical reason why he needed to know all that stuff for yeah. that project. But then you zoom back and you're like, okay, so I, he was a musician at one point. Um, where was he a musician? Why isn't he a musician anymore? Why is he a journalist now? So you start answering all those questions. So, I mean, the, Naben's written several books now. This is my first one. And so it was really an education in how a book comes together. Mm. Uh, and I previously had the notion that writers would sort of sit down and plan out everything. And I think some writers do that. Orhan Pamuk has said that he plans literally every chapter uh, and then he writes the book. But my experience of writing this was much more, you're solving all of these little problems. Right. Um, and in the process of solving the problems, you limit your options. So your character, and I think there's something philosophical about this maybe, that, that our individuality is a product of limitations. Uh, me being me or you being you is a product of the fact that of the infinite number of things that one could be, we are only this one. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we tried other ways and, and the world said no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a great line in uh, Duddy Kravitz where Duddy goes to his uncle uh, and his uncle says, when, when, when a man is 20, there's seven people he can be. Uh, and by the time he's 25, there's only two because he's killed all the rest of them. Mm. And I think by the time he's 30, it'll just be one. Yeah. Uh, I may be getting the numbers wrong there. Um, but I, I, I like that idea of as a creative impulse that, that writing is about starting with infinite possibilities and slowly backing yourself into a corner. Mm. It's really interesting that you, that you chose not to leap, uh, to only go forward from, from the lower registers, um, from the, that chapter about the hydro organon. Yeah. Is that a hydro organon? Yeah, it. It's got an umlaut and everything. It's very sophisticated. <laughs> um, it, uh, it, it was because that could have been the beginning. We could have started there. And we could have gone into the folly of of of, uh, of so many things, but you but you situated in the middle. It was a place you had to get to um, from somewhere else. Uh, 
was that was it obvious to you that as you said solving problems did you did you see that you had you had problems of 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 uh, precedent to solve and then problems of of destination or what or was that like a was that a, a riddle that, that sort of bothered you for a time yeah i mean there's there's there there's you know the, i think i cut something like 50,000 words from this manuscript so it's 75,000 words yeah. so okay. i i cut you know <laughs> two thirds of it basically um or no, no, I'm getting the math. I'm not good at math. I'm sorry. I don't know how much I cut. I cut a lot. Um, <laughs> well, if it was 50,000 words, that's a short novel. There's this, this other short novel that landed on the floor. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So that's part of the, the process of um, trying things and seeing what works. Mm. Uh, because, again, it is a form. The form places demands on you. Mm. Uh, the form requires that you do certain things. For this novel to work as a novel, then we have to have a certain amount of continuity of characters. We have to have... A, a certain amount of action and, you know, the modulation between action and moments of reflection. Um, yeah, that's what a novel is. And there's a certain, again, to go back to limitations, that's the pleasure of working in any artistic form is the way that the limitations help you come up with ideas. Mm. If I know that he has to end up, that this has to end, there has to be a last page and a final scene, what does that look like? You know? Mm. Um, and how do I how do I get him there? Yeah. I I knew really early that it ends with him at, at the train station deciding not to get onto a train. I knew that when I only had about twenty five thousand words written. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. then, how do we get to? How yeah. Do we get and now you got to get there. Yeah. 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 This has not spoiled it for you. <laughs> okay. There's plenty plenty to get out of it. Um, Osman says, uh, and this is not this this is another. He's got he's a very quotable dude. Um, even when I'm misquoting him. Um, Reading novels taught me that I'm a coward. <laughs> Did reading novels ever teach you that you were a coward? Um, well, I, it's a fundamental. It, reading novels taught me that I could never live with being a coward, mm. which is why the only instances I've, I've ever been brave in my life have become, be, been because I've been terrified of cowardice. Like I have to do something or else I just won't be able to live with this and I'll think about it in the shower every morning for the rest of my life, so I have to say something. That's where, that's where bravery comes from, mm. from men like me is... You know, reading, reading the the Scarlet Pimpernel when you're 11, and then realizing, oh, I got to be a Pimpernel right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in in his case, um, it, it's it's dual because reading like that, what defined his life, like this sort of deep investment in art and what matters and ideas and and you know the values he saw incarnated in art and the the value that was put upon that art by those around him, abandoning that was an act of cowardice for him, deciding like, pretend, disguising it as a rebellion and deciding that this is not for me, that was a lie to him. He, he knows he was being a coward, but also he's talking about the contents of those books and all the things he sees done that he knows he can never do. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about ephemera, because uh, ephemera is important for both your books as well. Um, if we stay with uh, Osman's world, Brody Beagle is a fun character. I wanted more of Brody. Brody, Brody was ridiculous. Uh, Brody Beagle being a, uh, a, a, a dude who, who, who was a, a tech startup CEO guy who has billions of dollars. And, and he, what is it? He produces like everything he does is ephemera. Nothing is, is there's nothing substantial, but he owns things and the things he owns, he's lost track. <laughs> 
that, that came from sort of my understanding or misunderstanding of how valuations are done in, yeah. the, in the tech world, how the valuations are often made on based on you know, how much funding a project has received, how much a VC faith basically is put in the product. How much is everyone else already in for? Exactly. And like this is true of something like Uber, which has never turned a profit, or, or Netflix. And I just found that so fascinating because, <laughs> you know, we're the losers. We're the ones who make things that nobody wants to engage with. We write books. That's so useless. Whereas like tech, that's so practical. And yet at the highest levels, it's just all faith-based. And, you know, that faith is going to pay off. There is obviously a lot of money in that world. But I found I find this enormous long in-between stage, um, especially in that uh, sort of, what's her name, Elizabeth Holmes story, of course, the, the which is the, part of the inspiration of this novel, mm. where this, uh, was it Theranos, her company? Yeah. 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 This company was creating a product that would never work, that never existed, but it was able to create enough faith, enough faith to continue, for money to continue coming in. And it's looked at as being this, like, look at this uniquely crazy thing that happened. It's it's not a unique thing that happened. It's happening all the time at the highest levels. If you look at successful tech startup guys who are unicorns who got out having made a billion dollars, if you look at the the trail of like dead product and companies mm. in their background, it's pretty rare to find, you know, that there isn't a kind of Theranos light in there somewhere. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, the more the more Elon Musk talks, the 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 more miraculous his wealth seems. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a great. It, he's a uh, uh, Bill Bill Burr has, has pointed this out about Steve Jobs. It's like he didn't actually make anything. He pointed at people and got got them to make them for him. And that's exactly what Elon Musk's entire career has been. Maybe maybe he made part of the PayPal cash register. I don't know. But ever since then, it just it's the the power of the inspirational power of the CEO to to create labor. That is what we worship. Yeah. Is the ephemera manifests differently in, of course, uh, in the city of pigs. It's, um, uh, it's how Fera Civitatem, the underground, um, cult art collective, uh, there, they, they seek to completely evade capitalism through the ephemeral quality of the art they produce. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that. That's that's a tricky thing for music because it is it is an art that just happens in time, and you were there or you weren't, and and any any way to broach that seems to be just completely gobbled up by some some capitalist mechanism or another. Yeah, yeah. Well, value comes from scarcity, mm. right? Broadly speaking, desire and scarcity, and the intersection where desire and scarcity meet—that's where value is. So, you know, when we were growing up, you know, I'm sure you remember this. I'm sure you remember this too. You know, new album comes out. You know, ten tracks. How is it? Is it good? Does it hold up? You go to the record store. You know, do they have it yet? You know, and you happily pay your fifteen dollars or ten dollars or whatever it is, and you bring it home and you sit down, and you listen to it, and you listen to it again. And this is so precious, this experience, right? And every one of those tracks, you know, becomes your friend, you mm -hmm. know, if it's a good album. And if it's a bad album, there's this feeling of betrayal. <laughs> like, or, or, or worse, <laughs> it becomes your friend anyway. <laughs> right, because you only have so many albums, right? right? And, and, um, and I, I, we don't live in that world anymore because I have Spotify and I can just look up any song. Mm. You know, and I can listen to it. And there's, there's absolute, like the, the number of limitations has been removed, which is the promise of this technology. Is, but what, what does that do to value? Mm. I think it creates a problem for value because when you remove these limitations, 
then then you you change the fundamental relationship that the person has. So if you take that to its logical conclusion, you say, well, what would be the most valuable music under that rubric? Mm. It would be the music that is only ever performed once in one place, is not written down, is not recorded, never happens again. Right. One right? step removed from the Wu-Tang album that Martin Shkreli picked <laughs> <laughs> that nobody gets to hear. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so so there's there's a lot of other stuff going on. They're also doing, I mean, they're basically raves, you yeah. know, classical music raves. Um, so they're trying to create these intense experiences. Um, but but as music, that's kind of the, the thing that that I think the people who create these are going after. Now, that's where the rubber hits the road in, in the novel is that how do you actually create all this stuff? Well, someone needs to be footing the bill. Mm. You know, someone needs to be ponying up because if it's only created once and it only exists in this very precious space, well, musicians aren't going to want to do it because they can't put their name on it because these things are illegal. So they're not getting any clout for, yep. <laughs> for, being, for being in that famous show because they can't admit that they were in it. Um, and there's no product that could be sold. Um, I think they, they sell tickets so you can get in, but it's not a way to build a career, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a very pure ideal of art. Like that's decommodified art. That's mm -hmm. art that really does not exist in a marketplace the way most art does these days. But then that creates this complicated relationship, let's say, with the people who can actually put some money behind, mm. behind this project. Mm. Well, so I love that that exists in the same novel as the Hydro Organon, which is a capital intensive uh, undertaking. It's this gigantic musical instrument that makes music that, that nobody can hear that, 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 uh, that defies all, all, um, uh, all, all experiential data. I mean, a Alexander can't write really about, he's got to write about the, he's, his story winds up being about the, the capital outlay, about the logistics, about, about the, the stuffness of it. Cause he can't write about the music. Uh, he he writes about the bubbles coming out of the pipes. I guess is is all he's got there. Did did I I found that I find that remarkable because these two things exist in the same novel, and especially as you describe writing it, it really seems like a like a kind of a a real eureka to come up with this this cult of ephemeral music um, after you've been weighed down after the 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 core of the story is this is this work of steel buried in seawater. Um, did there? Did, was, was it like an outside thing? Was there something in the world where you thought, well, that's an interesting thing I might throw into my book or did you have to, to grow that organically? The hydroorganon? No, the, 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 the cult. The cult. Well, I've always loved that stuff. I've always loved the idea of like just weirdos doing stuff in a, in a very uh, inaccessible way, mm. underground. That, that whole idea, it, it does something for me. Okay. Um, and a lot of books that I love are kind of about about that, right? Yeah. About these kind of weird groups that are secretive. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's a, an element to which I'm attracted to it also because we live in such a public age, um, especially for art, that, that being an artist is about being a public figure or trying to become one, right? You have to be on Twitter, yep. <laughs> you know? You're not gonna sell books if you're not on Twitter, you have to be on Instagram. So I'm, I'm drawn to that, you know, and because I'm, I'm, a good, I'm a good soldier in that sense, I, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'll tweet about my book. I'll yeah. try to get people to come to an event like yeah. this. Well done, by it's the good way. Good for I, my I career. Tweeted you know? that. It was great. <laughs> that. Um, but because I'm, because I'm doing that, I'm perversely drawn to the inverse of that, which would be someone writing a book and then only distributing it to their friends as a PDF, you know, and refusing to be public in any way about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think these cultists are kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're not quite that far, but they're, mm -hmm. 
they're moving towards that. Uh, Yusuf Racha, um, who's an Egyptian writer, has a great novel called The Crocodiles, which is about this secret group of poets in Cairo. Um, that that I, I read it after I started this book, but it was really hit mm. the sweet spot for me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I got I got to ask about rockabilly music, guys, because 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 it was uh, as as a person who had to read both your books uh, uh, in relatively short order, it was stunning to me to find rockabilly music showing up not once but twice. If to have, to have each of you addressing it, tell me about what what's the, the what's the what was what was the play there? Well, that wasn't me. That's him. That's the character. Osman. Of course, he was it just. Was. <laughs> I think it, it's in particular. Um, Osman goes to this bar, which he thinks is going to be a cool bar. And it is for an hour or so, and then it, it turns out to be like, um, it's their rockabilly slash ska revival night, which points to, what I was pointing to is like there's this point in the late 90s where they made those things cool again by making the worst version of them. And they became very <laughs> popular for two months. And and it was the for the way a lot of people encountered that music. You know, there's obviously a lot of great rockabilly music that's decades old. It might still annoy the shit out of you, but it exists. And I wanted him to, I wanted that to be about artifice, basically, mm. about this sort of, we're getting nostalgic about a fake thing now. Yeah, I think Alexander at one point compares Rockabilly to the Crusades, uh, which I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't, uh, I don't, I think the Crusades were far worse than Rockabilly uh, has ever been. Um, I don't know. I think Rockabilly is a funny word. Yeah. I thought it was funny to have the word Rockabilly in that sentence. Yeah. And sometimes it's as simple as that. That is actually true. I mean, sometimes a word is just funny and, and it fits well with the other words that are more serious in the sentence. Yeah. Sometimes it's just about a cheap joke. <laughs> uh, I, I, loved, I loved both, both jokes, uh, however, however cheap um, we may be valuing them at. Um, I, I just want to read this one line, uh, this one sentence from, um, from In the City uh, of pigs. Um, and it is, and I wonder if, I wonder if you know what I'm about to read here. It is a well-known fact that in Toronto, even a symphony performed <laughs> by deaf orangutans would be entitled to a standing ovation. So long as at least half of the orangutans showed up. That was bang on. There's no comment required on that. I just needed. I just needed to say it in front of a crowd. It's a truth universally acknowledged. Uh, absolutely. Um, that is all the time we've got. Uh, I want to thank you, Andre, Ben, for your time for writing wonderful, provocative novels, folks. Thank you for coming. Thank you all for being part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors, and we hope to see you back here soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this series of live author interviews. For us, it was so much fun to be out in the world again, taking all reasonable safety precautions, of course, and gathering with folks like yourselves who care a lot about books and the authors who write them. We, we really can't wait to do it all over again. This episode contains audio recorded at the Toronto International Festival of Authors and was produced by me, Nathan Maharaj. We'll be back soon with author interviews recorded in closets and bedrooms, as you've come to expect. But for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>